going to admit on the front end that I told Kenzie last night I have way too much material. I'm going to try to move quickly. And I will also admit that I struggled for several days how to structure this lesson to make it flow. So I apologize on the front end if it doesn't flow correctly. Uh, and if uh, I think you will, you will know what we're what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying I, I have struggled with exactly how to organize. Uh, Organize it correctly to make it flow to the best of my ability. So please uh, bear with me. I want to start out uh, looking at some data that the Pew Research Center uh, has done. One of these articles, the first article that we'll uh, start with, a uh, guy I work with actually sent to me uh, middle of the week this week, and I felt like it kind of at least fit uh, somewhat for the discussion that we'll have today. Um, and so if you're not familiar, the Pew Research Center does uh, a lot of different things, but one thing in particular is they study uh, religion uh, across the country. And they're supposed to be kind of an unbiased uh, research group. Uh, and so, you know, as I looked through their website, they had a lot of interesting things. But anyway, this is where this information is coming from. So the first thing... And this was the article the guy sent me. Uh, and they, they're saying they're modeling the future of religion in America. That's the title of the, of the article. And um, <clears throat> they're essentially trying to see, you know, moving forward. shows up better there than it does here. Moving forward, what's religion going to look like here? Uh, you've seen a lot of your European countries, you know, from the middle of the 20th century to be majority uh, would claim to be Christians to now mostly the majority would be what they would call unaffiliated, disaffiliated, or nons. It's kind of all the same thing. Uh, and, you know, this uh, graph here is essentially saying, you know, back in 1972, 90% of Americans would have claimed some form of Christianity. They would have said, if you asked them, are you a Christian? They would have said yes. So nine out of every ten people you ran across in 1972 would have said that. Um, I wasn't born in 1972, but I know folks that I deal with that were uh, talk about the drastic change living in America. I think this is probably one of the references being uh, being being said. So you go from nine in ten Americans to today, six in ten Americans would claim that, and this is modeling out to 2070, uh, and essentially. You know, I'll try to uh, weed through some of it. You know, you have this no switching, steady switching, and with limits and without limits. Uh, more than likely, we're going to be at the with limits. You know, so uh, the progression, the speeding up uh, of people leaving Christianity uh, is what I believe is going to be true. Uh, and then you'll have the nons or the religious unaffiliated being around roughly, you know, 50%. And then you'll have, uh, here you'll have your uh, folks that claim to be Christians being at 40%. So these are some other interesting facts coming out of that article. Uh, most people would switch 
uh, between ages 15 and 29. Uh, Christian group is the oldest, uh, is older than the religiously unaffiliated. So, you know, as you have the older generation dying off, what's going to happen? Uh, does this speed up? Does this slow down? I think we would all, at least I would think in here, agree that this this leaving of Christianity in America is going to be speeding up. Each new generation sees 31% of people who were raised Christian become religiously unaffiliated by the time they reach 30 years old. Uh, and I found this to be interesting as well. 21% of those who grew up with, non, with no religion become Christian. That's what they would say. Majority of the nines believe in a higher power or spiritual force. I don't know exactly what that is, just something I saw in there. Declining share of the population say they pray or daily or consider religion very important in their lives. Another thing it said, it was kind of hard to put this in here, but another thing in this article, I mean, they even admitted it, that uh, the less religious, even if, even if the household or even if the parents claimed to be Christians, if they were less religious in their practice, they had a higher rate of, um, of their children becoming unaffiliated. And so, you know, you have this declining share of the population, even among those that claim to be Christians, saying that they pray daily or consider religion very important in their lives. <clears throat> so what does that mean? What does that uh, mean for us? I think it means more opportunity. That's what I think. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to more of that in a minute. This is something else that I've talked with, uh, with about, uh, I guess, people in general that I wind up talking about uh, church or religion, is this idea... You know, so so we see back here we've got this rapid rate. We've got this rapid rate of decline uh, in America of folks that claim to be Christians. And among people I talk to, it's, it's troubling. You know, people would say it troubles them uh, for this thing, for these things to be going on. And I normally bring up something in regards to this right here. Something in regards to either divorce, the acceptance of adulterous marriages in religious groups, or this idea right here of cohabitation. This idea of living with someone you're not married to before you are married. So living, um, essentially living in, in a fornication, living in fornication, all right? And so uh, to me, this middle graph is kind of uh, probably one of the more interesting ones. Percent of adults saying it is acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together. Uh, you know, you combine, the if they plan to get married and if they don't plan to get married, you combine those two, and what is that? That's 70, that's 80, roughly 85% or 85% of people walking around today say this is acceptable. That's wild to me. That is wild. All right? But what do you see happening? This is, I mean, it's exactly what you see, but to see it in a graph is just, it's, it's almost mind-boggling to me to see this. All right? And then you've got some, they break it down. Uh, sorry for covering that up, but they, they break it down into other, you know, age brackets. Um, you know, this is how people really think. So, uh, adults younger than the age of thirty say that you have a better chance of staying married if you live together. All right. By the way, research does not prove this. Okay, uh, it does not today, and it did not. I believe the the first study I saw was done in the seventies on this. When this really started happening, it was in the 70s, uh, or, or it started climbing in the 70s. Uh, 78% of people age 18 to 29 say it's acceptable. 74% uh, of Catholics say this is acceptable. 
47% of black Protestants, 35% of white evangelical pro, uh, Protestants say it is, is acceptable for unmarried people to live together. So that means uh, 50% of people that would claim to be Christians would say this is acceptable. So five out of every ten people you meet that say they go to church somewhere would say that this is acceptable. I mean, that's just me trying to do some quick math in my head on these percentages. Nine in ten religiously unaffiliated say cohabitation is acceptable even if they don't plan to get married. So just just living with somebody. This is, uh, to me, probably some of the most fascinating because they, they've tracked it from the 70s. So in 1970, less than 1% of the population would have said cohabitation is acceptable. That was 52 years ago. 52 years ago. That's not very long. I'm not 52, but still, that's not very long uh, in the whole grand scheme of things. 70% in 2019... Uh, which is more than double of what it was in 1987. So you've just seen a rapid acceptance of this practice. All right? And so why, why, why would I even bring this up? Again, I think it's, to me, I look at this and I see opportunity. Because what I've had this same kind of conversation multiple times as of late. I'll meet this person Mostly, most people I run to are going to be Baptists or Presbyterians. I meet this person. We get to talking. Uh, I realize that they're way more conservative than the average person I meet. All right? And I ask them this basic question. Why are you going down where you're going? That doesn't make any sense to me. You don't agree with them people. They kind of look at me like, what? You know, never really been, never had this really said to me before. And I'm like... And, it, you know, it, it, it comes in several forms because it depends on what we talked about right before. But uh, in one case, I know the guy doesn't believe in once saved, always saved. He's going down there to First Baptist Church. I say, man, you don't agree with them people. You do not agree with them, I promise you. And he's like, well, yeah, you're, you're right. Well, why are you going down there? Well, I don't really have a good answer for that. Well, I'm not a member. I'm not a member. I just go. I might give my money, but I'm not, I'm not a member down there. <laughs> I've had that be defended. Uh, well, uh, ah, you know, I don't know. I do think that, again, that there's going to be more opportunity for us to have those kind of conversations and I think we need to be ready for that because I do believe there's more people sitting in some of these churches around us, especially when you kind of get out in the country, at least it's been my experience. I guess I work mostly in the country, but that's been my experience. You kind of get out in these little country churches and you start meeting some of the people that go there. And even within those places, they don't agree with the majority of the people that they go to church with. They still go down there. They're faithful in their attendance, wherever that may be. But doctrinally, and, and even in practice, they don't agree. Uh, you know, I, I've heard things said as of late of, oh, it's turning into a social club. There's nobody here. I'm, I'm, the, I'm, the, uh, I'm the youngest one in my Sunday school class, and I'm in my late 30s, and the next person above me is in their 50s. What's happening to everybody my age? You know, comments like that. 
and you pick up on those things and you you at least I'm I'm sitting there thinking he he's not happy. He he sees what's going on around him. And to me that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity for me to say for me to start asking those questions. You know, well why? And then I you know, what is typical for me, I ask the question to somebody else, then I get to thinking about it about my, my own self. Why do I go where I go? Why do I come here every Sunday? Why have I chosen to bring my family down here? So these are some of the main things that I would that I've brought up lately with um, you know the multiple people I'm telling you about. I'm trying to combine several conversations with you this morning. Uh, but this idea of you don't agree with these people that you go to church with on doctrine. So why in the world would you go down there? Because I know if you open your mouth when you get to Hebrews 10, then people are going to run you out of the building. Well, I don't open my mouth when we get to Hebrews 10. Well, I bet you don't, you know. Um, and then I bring up this idea of open dialogue, you know, because I, I, I do get, I have gotten that several times when I would push somebody about this, it would be, well, I can't bring that up down there. You know, I know what it says in the book, but I can't bring that up down there in Sunday school. Uh, that's not possible. Um, and to me, these two right here are very closely related. Uh, this idea of being a place of open dialogue and then this idea of proper love for one another. What does it look like? What, is, uh, what does it look like when God's people come together uh, around this? And so let's just turn to some of these passages. I think it's helpful um, for us to consider some of these things uh, ourselves. And I know that we are not going to have time to read all these passages, uh, but I would like to read some. Romans 15, beginning in verse 5, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded to one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind in one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to Ephesians. Really, most of Ephesians uh, chapter 4 deals with this topic of uh, His, God's people, God's church being unified uh, in their their mind um, and being unified in spirit. Ephesians 4 and in verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And so here it bears the question, um, you know, are, it, are God's people supposed to be unified? Are they supposed to be uh, doctrinally together? Are they supposed to think about um, these things uh, in unison? Or is there supposed to be you know, division uh, among His people? Let's continue in verse 7 uh, through 16. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, He says, when He ascended on high, He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this He ascended. What does it mean? But that that he also first descended in the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens 
that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful potting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined in it together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So does this sound to you like a group of people that is uh, in unison or that are divided? To me it sounds like uh, he would have us to be unified till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he, he doesn't want us to be tossed to and fro. He doesn't want us to be over here and over there. He wants us to be together in these things. Philippians 1. Philippians 1 and in verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you in absence, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Again, does this sound like a people unified or divided? Colossians 2. Verse 18 and 19. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into these, those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his, by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. In James 3 and in verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then it's peaceable. So it has, there's this idea of purity before peace, uh, and that is what we should be striving for. Let's go to James. Chapter, while we're in James, let's, let's turn over to chapter 5. This idea of the church being this being a place of open dialogue, of uh, us coming together, of us uh, being willing to correct one another. And you know, and I, I when I normally get to this when I'm talking with somebody, I normally say, "Look, I don't want to go to a place where the people I attend with are not willing to look at me." in the eye, and tell me if I keep on doing that, I'm going to hell. I don't want to be at a place where that's not the case. I want to be at a place where them folks love me enough that they're willing to to look at me, stand up to me, and tell me to quit doing that. Because look, right here, I can show you my Bible. You keep on doing that, you're going to go to hell. And I, I normally ask them, why would you not want to go to a place just like that? Because we all need that. Mostly I think about Matt when I say that. I'm, I'm pretty sure Matt's going to be willing to do that. You know, and I take comfort in that. I don't think he's the only one, by the way. I think there's a lot of folks in here that would. And I appreciate that. I want that. I think that's what we need. I think that's what the Bible tells us that we need from one another. James 5 and in verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will, co- will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. 
Ephesians 5 and in verse 11. Ephesians 5 and in verse 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So again, we're supposed to be exposing these evil things. Exposing uh, those things that are unfruitful works of darkness. And who thinks that that, that that can't be true of any one of us? That any one of us might not get tied up in something that we not, ought not be in. That we not be, might not be practicing something that we ought not. And that we need somebody in here to, to turn us back. To, to expose those things. To uh, tell us to quit doing those things. Let's go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33. I'm going to have to skip some of these verses. Ezekiel 33, beginning in verse 7. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from me, from my mouth, and, and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. So what's the idea here? The idea here, he's telling Ezekiel, uh, if I'm telling you to warn the house of Israel, if I'm telling you that you ought to warn the wicked uh, from his way, and you do not, his blood is on your hands. You're now held accountable for that. Um but he says there in verse 9, if you tell him, you've delivered your soul. So, again, the responsibility we have for one another. Let's go to Acts 15. Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren there in Antioch, uh, so certain men are coming down from Judea, taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Do y'all think this got heated? I said a few nods. I think so. I mean, look. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, do you think that Paul and Barnabas cared about the truth of the gospel here? Do you think they cared that the truth was what won the day? I do. I think they cared so much that there was a dispute, there was a dissension among them, and that they, had to, they finally had to say, look, we're going to have to go, we've got to go to Jerusalem to, to handle this. So they leave Antioch, they go down to Jerusalem... Um, let's continue reading. Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had... And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And of course, this is where Peter um, talks about Cornelius. But again, you know, there had been much dispute. Peter rises up. 
I think these people cared about the truth. This is doctrine that we're talking about here. Uh, this is the matter of do the Gentile brethren have to be uh, circumcised and to keep uh, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So do they have to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised, these Gentile brethren? And it seems to me uh, we at least know Paul, Barnabas, and Peter had some disagreement about that. And here you see them come together. And, of course, we don't have time to read the whole chapter. They come together. They consider this, this matter. They come to a conclusion. They write a letter um, to those brethren. Uh, and then it's delivered back to them. They, they solve the matter. But they're willing to talk about it. They're willing to bring it before one another. They're willing to come together. Um, look at verse 6. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And so they're willing to have this open dialogue uh, back and forth uh, to look at this. And then again, I, you know, I have up here that the church should be a place where there's proper love for one another. Uh, and let's go to Romans 15. We're just going to read a couple of these verses that I have up here. Romans 15, beginning in verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So this idea of uh, edifying one another, being there uh, for one another. Go to Galatians. Galatians 2. Galatians chapter 2 and in verse, beginning in verse 11. This is where uh, Paul comes to Peter and uh, confronts him about what he's doing in regards to the Jews and Gentiles. Now remember what we just talked about in Acts 15. But this is Paul again coming to Peter. Verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I was stood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? And so here you have Paul coming uh, to face Peter. Uh, he's saying Barnabas is even carried away with this. He he comes uh, and stands up to him before them all to address this matter. And so here I see Paul being willing to address Peter, being willing to say, hey, Peter, this isn't right. You're not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. This, does not, this should not be taking place here. And again, he's doing this uh, uh, certainly in front of Peter and before them all. And so, again, this is what I, what I see uh, when I think about this idea of open dialogue between us uh, and, and um, the love that we should have for one another going uh, back and forth. So I want to ask you, in the few minutes we have left, maybe to consider this question. Uh, why do you attend here? Is it for social reasons? Uh, like the same ball teams, got the same hobbies with some of the folks here, uh, family, friends attend here. Is that why you attend here? 
monetary reasons? Is it just good for business uh, for you to be here? Does it make you feel good? You went to church somewhere. You got to check that box. I gave some money. I feel good about doing that. I know I probably ought to. So, you know, I go somewhere and I give some money. People, These people here are nice. You know, they're nice to me. Uh, you should grow up going to the Church of Christ. So that's why you decided this was this is where you ought to be. You like the mu- music? I know the last one doesn't apply today, but it could some other time. You know, you like the preacher? I mean, you, you can all probably... Uh, you've probably met some folks that maybe even verbalized some of these things. I certainly have. Man, I like the music down there because that, that's, that's the best place in town. We travel around a couple of folks in town. Man, that's the best band I've ever heard. Because <laughs> that's why I'm going down there. Man, that preacher, he's dynamic, man. You ought to go listen to that guy. That's why I like going down there wherever I'm going. Uh, I'm sure we've all heard some of these things. Or man, hey, that's just what I grew up. That's just what I know. Those are the, they, they carry out the same kind of traditions. I'm comfortable with that. They dress about the same way. It, you know, they go to church about the same time every Sunday morning that I went to church when I was growing up. You know, I mean, I've heard all this stuff, and I know you probably have too. What makes a local congregation acceptable to Him? So what makes any given church that we see, I don't know how many are in Columbus or how many are in Mississippi, but what makes any given local congregation acceptable to God, acceptable to Him? Because that's, that's what we want. That's what we're looking for. We want to be at a place uh, that fits what He would have for us to do together and individually. Are we doing those things? And here again, just a list of questions, you know. Uh, is it the worship? Uh, is it the singing or the, or the band? Is it what we do with the money? Is there attitude to one, towards one another? Is it the fact that we have a gymnasium or a fellowship hall? Is it our attitude towards uh, the Word, His church? Uh, what time we actually attend on Sunday? Uh, how many people are there? Is that what matters? Again, how dynamic is the preacher? Our attitude to those who are on the outside? Our practices? You can probably add even more to, to think about, about what makes uh, a local congregation uh, acceptable to him. Then I, you know, as you kind of process through this, and again, I told you I struggled with how to, you know, logically get this put together. But then you have to ask your, yourself: Is this place a church of Christ? All right, go to Ephesians five. Ephesians 5 and in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. All right? And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes just as the Lord does the church. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, ladies, one of you in particular shall love his own wife as himself, and let 
the wife see that she respects her husband. And so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of application here with husbands and wives, but we're focused this morning on what Paul is telling us about the relationship between uh, the church and Christ. Christ is head of the church. Christ is in charge. Christ um, is the Savior of the body. He's trying to present the church uh, without spot, without wrinkle, uh, and holy and without blemish. All right, But it's His church. He, he's in charge. And the church is to be subject to Him. So again, you ask this, we ask this question, is, uh, is this a church of Christ? Yes or no. Um, and I think what we have to do is we have to look back and see what His church in the New Testament did. What did they do when they came together? What did those people do when they departed from one another, individually living their daily lives? What did they do? And then we have to ask, do, in order for it to be a church of Christ, uh, do we carry out the work given for us to do in the ways that they did? So that not only... Not only that we do the work, but we, did, but we do the work as, as they were told to do the work. Uh, and do we teach Christ's doctrine? Do we rightly divide the word of truth? Are we saying those things that are right? Go to Acts 2. And I find this comes up in those discussions uh, like I was telling you about that I'll start out with, you know, uh, they sometimes wind up coming back to this idea of, well, no church is perfect. You ever heard that? I certainly have. All right. And then, we'll, well, what makes a church the right church? I've been asked that one in this whole discussion. I normally come back right here. This is normally where I would come back. If you go to Acts 2 and verse 46... So continue daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord adds those to the church. All right? His church. The church that we're all supposed to be a part of. Well, how were they added to the church? Go back to verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many of the Lord our God will call. All right? That's how you're saved. All right? He tells it right there. Verse 47 says, The Lord adds them to the church. All right? So, um, it's not me doing the adding. I'm not adding anybody. The Lord does. But, his church is made up of saved people, all right? And those saved people are saved just like these folks were, all right? So that's what constitutes, you know, the church in general, all right? And then, you know, if you just kind of think through what happens in our New Testaments, from here to about Acts 8 and verse 1, you got one to turn over there, Acts 8 and verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death, that'd be Stephen, and at that time, a great persecution rose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. This is the only church that existed at that point in time was the church at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. All right, so the apostles evidently stayed in Jerusalem. All, most of the disciples dispersed. They go throughout all the regions around. And then what do we see play out through the rest of our New Testament? We see local congregations. What do we see? Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Titus. 
Apollos, I believe, traveling around and strengthening the brethren in all these places. So they organized themselves in local congregations wherever they went to. All right? uh, what are the epistles? The epistles are all, most, written to uh, local churches. To Mostly you see things in, in most of them. You think back to even the uh, letters to the seven churches in Revelation. There was in those epistles things that they were doing good. Hey, I praise you in doing these things. Most of, most of them are written that way. And But hey, you need to fix this. You've got this problem here that you need to fix, or multiple problems you need to fix. Think about the Corinthian letters. You know, Paul certainly uh, says some praises to them, but boy, is it a mess. And y'all need to straighten that up. Y'all need to fix these problems. Don't just live with them. You need to get them right. Y'all need to repent of these things. Think back to our study just through the churches there in Revelation that we just finished. We are over time already. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna just speed through. Matt's telling me okay. I don't know what. Okay. We'll, we'll look at a little bit of this, but I'm going to speed up. I don't want to keep everybody sitting for too long. To identify... Uh, again, this idea of are you a church of Christ? Uh, do we identify ourselves in name as His church did in the New Testament? And there's certainly, uh, you know, you can go to Romans 16, verse 16. Uh, there's several names that they went by. Uh, you can see you can see Paul writing or addressing the churches in the New Testament. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. So you got to remember, he's traveling around and going to these other places, strengthening them. Uh, you can see that. Of course, we'll read about some of that there in Acts in a minute. Uh, but you can see, and he's saying, look, the churches of Christ greet you as I do. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And so another name by which they went by, church of God, church of Christ, to the church of the Thessalonians, there in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's how he's identifying uh, that group there. Do we evangelize like they did? Again, you go back to Acts, and this is, you know, uh, you could spend a lot of time just looking at verses of, you know, the different uh, apostles traveling around. Uh, and meeting with the brethren. I think I've got that one wrong. That reference wrong there. Go to 14.1. Acts 14 and in verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude both of the Jews and of the Greeks believed. But the believing Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. And so here you see, um, uh, you know, Paul going to the synagogue, seventeen ten. As was his custom, you see there in verse seventeen ten that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews again, teaching. Uh, teaching them. You know, it says there in verse 11, these were more fair-minded than those of Thessalonica and that they received uh, and the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And so you see Paul 
continually going uh, to these places to teach. Verse 16 of the same chapter. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And so you see Paul, you know, he, he's willing to talk to anyone and everybody at any, at any place. Uh, so he, again, there you see the brethren sending Paul away to go to another place to teach. You see Paul, uh, you know, making sure that he's talking to whoever uh, is willing to listen. Chapter 18 and verse 27. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is Christ. And, of course, this is Apollos. You know, so, again, he's, uh, making, he's refuting the Jews publicly. He's from the Scriptures teaching, uh, teaching these people. And then, do we practice what they practice in the New Testament church? Is that what we do here? Uh, is that what we practice uh, when we come together? Of course, Acts 20 and verse 7 and 1 Corinthians 11 is dealing with partaking the Lord's Supper. Uh, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 14 is dealing with uh, singing and admonishing one another in song. 1 Corinthians 16 and Acts 11 dealing with this idea of contributing, giving monetarily. 1 Corinthians 5, this idea of withdrawing fellowship. They were to do that when they were together. And so, again, if, if Christ is the head of the church and the church is subject to Him, and we're asking this, this question, uh, is this or is, is any place a church of Christ? We have to look back to see if we or any other place is subject to Christ. Are we doing those things in which we are commanded to do? Are we doing those things uh, that they were told to do that we see in our New Testaments? question for us I think again you know going back and thinking through this question of well no church is perfect alright well so how do I know where I should be going how do I know that it's not just okay for me to stay down here uh, at the first Baptist church the Presbyterian church whatever it may be or here if we're going to ask ourselves this question let me ask you do we practice everything we see in our Bibles perfectly right here do we treat one another perfectly like that we see we're commanded to do so right here has there ever been any division here doctrinally do we treat those outside of here perfectly do we evangelize perfectly here? We see what we're supposed to do. So do we do that? No. No, we don't. We do not. I'm under no illusion of that. I don't think that. That's why I tell folks, I don't think where I go is perfect. I do not. But all these things we just talked about, I believe we're trying. I believe that. I believe it's right here with all my heart. That's why I come here. That's why I attend here. That's why I bring my family down here. Because I think we're striving to be a church of Christ. That this group of people loves one another like we should to the best of our ability. Do we get it wrong? Yes. Do I get it wrong? Yes. 
Do I do everything perfectly? No. But should I try and should I strive to attend a place that does these things that we've talked about this morning to the best of our ability and that, that we strive to have open dialogue, we strive to tell one another when there's sin, that we strive when there is something of disagreement doctrinally, that we address it. We don't just sweep it under the rug and not talk about it. We talk about it like they did in Acts 15. We strive to deal with these things. We care enough that there is dissension and dispute. I believe all those things. I do. And when I'm talking to folks that I know are disgruntled where they are, that I know do not agree with the people that they go to church with, I tell them all these things. You shouldn't be down there. I don't know why you give them your money. Why would you take your family down there? You're going to ruin your kids. What do you think your kids are going to grow up with? I think people are hungrier and hungrier for that all the time. I really do. Maybe I'm wrong. But I've had these discussions multiple times lately. And it's been on my mind. I've been thinking through it. And, of course, asking myself these same questions. Uh, trying to make sure and, you know, of course, checking myself. But again, I think we need to be ready to have this discussion with people more and more as we move forward. More and more as people um, are seeing these things just deteriorate around them. Just deteriorate. They can see it. I'm telling you they can see it. Even if they go down there, they know it's happening. Uh, and are these the majority? I don't think so. I don't talk to everybody like this. Don't be in no illusion. I sure, you know, but I do know that I'm meeting more and more people that I feel like fall under this category uh, that are willing that are willing to tell me, you know, man, no, I, that just ain't right. So I encourage you, you know, as, as we consider all these things together this morning, that not only do I hope that we all strive to be better, because no, we're not perfect here. No, we don't practice everything perfect here. I hope we are all striving to more perfectly fulfill what the Lord has had, uh, has given us to do, the work He's given us to do here. I hope we are all striving to more perfectly do that individually and collectively, which I, I believe we are, but I hope we continue in that. I hope that we strive more for that all the time. And I hope that maybe this has helped us uh, think through how to talk to, to people when we come in contact with them. Uh, and help them process through these things in their mind and be ready to give an answer to them uh, for the reason of the hope that's within us and for the reason that we come where we go. So, if there's any need this morning, I'd ask that you would uh, come forward as we stand and as we sing.